If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator, a weekly show for marketing executives who need to accelerate customer-centric thinking and digital maturity. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe of Ambition Data. This show features innovative guests who share quick wins on how to improve your bottom line while creating happier, more valuable customers. Ready to accelerate? Let's go. Welcome, everyone. Today's show is about customer-based corporate valuation, which is the heart of customer equity. And to help me discuss this topic is Dan McCarthy. Dan is a professor of marketing at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, although he has a PhD in statistics from Wharton, which is actually where I originally ran across him. And sometimes when I'm talking to Dan, I swear, I feel like I'm talking to another Michael Burry. That's the guy from the big short. And so I want to call out that Dan is not a financial professor, but he is a very unique marketing professor focused on CLV. Dan, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. I'm really enjoying uh, the conversation. It's going to be uh, a lot of fun. Good, good. Thanks, Dan. So, Dan, I also want to note that you are a co-founder of Zodiac, a software tool that was built to run these models and was recently acquired by Nike. Tell us a little bit more about your background and how you were drawn to this topic. And if you want to say anything about the acquisition, great. If you don't, that's totally understand those things can be sensitive. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, so it's kind of alluding to the, the Michael Burry comment that you'd made. My background was actually pretty heavily financial. So I went to the Wharton School for undergraduate, and I concentrated in finance and statistics as well as system science engineering. And back in 2006, when I graduated, what everyone did was go to Wall Street. So I basically did what everyone else did and went to a hedge fund. So I was there for a number of years before you know, kind of seeing the light and coming back. My true passion was actually you're really kind of applying quantitative models. So I went back to Wharton for my PhD in statistics. And it was really in the second year of that PhD that I met Pete Fader, who's a wonderful professor up in the marketing department at the Wharton School. And I'd say the wonderful thing about customer-based corporate valuation, which is really why it ended up very quickly becoming the centerpiece of my PhD dissertation is it really brings together all three of those worlds. You've got the finance, because we're essentially we're thinking about the overall valuation of firms, but it's also very heavily statistics and marketing, because we need quantitative models that are fairly sophisticated to be able to make the accurate predictions that we need to perform valuation accurately. And obviously, what we're predicting is the behavior of customers, which is the world of marketing models. So... It's really been a true pleasure, and it's been just super exciting to see the level of enthusiasm that that we've received about this work. I bet. I bet. But, you know, for the average bearer, I wonder if the concept of customer-based corporate valuation is 
hard to grasp. You know, when you talk about finance, stats, and marketing coming together, just that alone sometimes may seem insurmountable in some organizations, particularly the larger organizations. So if you were to use an analogy or if you were to describe customer-based corporate valuation a little bit more for the layperson, how would you describe it or how would you picture it? Yeah, I think you know, even though you know I've kind of built up this whole image of you know it being really, really difficult at its most uh, kind of basic level, it's actually fairly simple. Mm-hmm. Essentially, when you're doing evaluation of a company, one of the big things that you need to do is predict what that company's future revenues are going to be. And ultimately, for customer-based businesses, businesses that derive most of the revenue from customers. For every dollar of revenues that the company generates, there has to be a customer who's making a purchase. And so to the extent that we can predict the flow of of customers uh, being acquired over time, the number of purchases they're going to make and how much they're going to spend on those purchases, that has to give us the revenues of the company. So essentially, there's nothing really new here in the sense that all we're doing is is really making an enlightened revenue projection. The key is, is how we get there. So I don't know if that's easier or harder, but you know, hopefully at least it makes intuitive sense kind of why this could be useful and different. Got it. Got it. So when you say the key is how we get there, I imagine you're saying that you might be standing on the shoulders of previous models, but now we're using a more precise or more accurate model. Would that be fair? Yeah. In some sense, it's standing on the shoulders of marketing giants. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> We've got these great models that have been studied and analyzed and improved on within marketing. And one of the big innovations here is in some sense to take those great marketing models and bring them into the world of finance. So, you know, within finance, to the extent that we have customer data that firms are disclosing, let's just kind of run the the marketing models that we've come to know and love and use those to come up with our revenue projections instead of doing it the traditional way, which is oftentimes to say something like, you know, revenues grew three, five percent last year and the year before. So I'm I think it's gonna grow another three percent this year. <laughs> which is just not potentially nearly as accurate. And it's definitely not anywhere near as diagnostic. Because essentially the other angle of you know, how you arrive at the projection uh, being almost as important as the projection itself, you, know, you can have a dollar of revenue come in. And to the same degree that not all customers are created equal, not all revenue dollars are created equal. If I'm getting that revenue dollar from a customer who I know is going to keep coming back for the next five years, that dollar is going to mean a lot more. I pay a lot more for it than a revenue dollar from a customer at a business that has very low retention and I can't expect that customer to come back. So again, there's just a lot of nuance and detail that we get from thinking about things from the vantage point of the customer that we just completely lose when we kind of go to that traditional way of thinking about things within finance. I I love that concept. Not every dollar is created equally. And I think we'll circle back to that at some point here. But I do want to dive into, you know, we've hit on a bit of why I care about customer-based corporate valuation through the definition, but I want to take it a step further into the different people. Can you walk us through, you know, because you've got these different lenses within the organization, maybe walk us through the different people who should care about it and why they should care from different angles? 
Yeah, it's an extremely important question. So first and foremost, there's the marketing department. You know, people like you and me. Mm-hmm. And if I'm a marketing manager, I need marketing budget. And the tough part is, if I go to the CFO and tell him or her, you know, I need this marketing budget so I can improve the customer experience and, and change the customer journey, I'm sure the CFO will appreciate that on some level. But yeah, you know, the CFO is a very dollars and cents person. And so, you know, what this work can really help do is kind of change the conversation to one that is essentially the same language that the CFO is speaking. Mm-hmm. So you'd be able to say with this marketing budget, I will be able to expand the value of the business by X. And that's something that I think the CFO could very much get on board with. So to the extent that the CFO is the one who controls the purse strings, that's a conversation that needs to be had. And this, I think, is a, a wonderful way to be able to have that conversation. The flip side of the coin are the people in finance. And so they're the people who actually are buying the stock or selling stock on a day-to-day basis. And it's ultimately, they're the ones who will determine what the devaluation of your firm will be. And this is extremely important to them because essentially it represents a whole new dimension of the valuation equation, an important source of signal for them to make potentially more profitable investment decisions. Okay. So even within finance, there's, I'd say kind of two main distinctions. There's kind of the passive shareholders. Those would be kind of more people like you and me where you know, we go to our Ameritrade account and buy or sell the stock. We don't really have control over any marketing levers. You know? So this can be very useful but you know, essentially, we're just kind of making passive predictions. It can also be really useful for, you know, say, private equity firms, because in addition to being able to kind of come up with some projection of what the value of the firm should be, you know, assuming the status quo were to persist, they can actually think about some of the marketing levers that they can pull to, say, improve customer retention or improve the efficiency of their you know, customer acquisition spend to further enhance the value of the company and thus the, the overall valuation of the firm. I love it. I love it. And and in fact, I'll just call out that Anthony Cho from Provenance, who's a private equity investor, will be speaking at our customer centricity conference coming up on May 17th and 18th at Wharton's campus in San Francisco. So he'll be speaking exactly to the point you just mentioned. Yeah, I would say, Anthony, I've spoken with him now a number of times about some of the amazing work that they've been doing. And they're just light years ahead of almost everyone else I've spoken with within private equity. So I think uh, cheers to him. And I think this is definitely a really important source of potential incremental value for his firm. Got it. Yeah, I agree. Now, I mean, there's a lot of financial models and things that come through. And I just wonder if you really think this is, is this a temporary passing fad because of the situation we have with data today? And, you know, maybe it's just the way that we are able to put models together right now, but in the long term, it won't really stick. So I guess the bottom line here is, is this a passing fad? Is is customer-based corporate valuation really here to stay or is it just, you know, something we think is interesting now? I really think it's here to stay. I think that Saying that customer-based corporate valuation is a fad would be like saying discounted cash flow valuation is a fad. <laughs> uh, discounted cash flow. Yeah, DCF valuation is kind of the de facto standard way of, of valuing firms. And you know, to the same degree that it almost kind of has to be true you know, just purely by accounting, this has to be true. 
essentially a model for how customers behave, rolling that up and using that to come up with accurate revenue forecasts, that decomposition cannot be false. There's almost a tautology built into it. So I think as long as we have the data, this will be valuable and it will be very diagnostic. So that's it. You know, kind of the other point. I really do think we're kind of in the first innings of this. You know, we've now just done a handful of examples ourselves. And each time we've done an example, you know, say Blue Apron or Wayfair, like we're going to talk about, you know, hopefully in a second, we've seen just a dramatic reaction, whether it's from you know, kind of the financial community or whether it's from the, the popular media. But we haven't really seen this expand too much beyond the work that Pete Fader and I have done in this area. So it'd be very hard to say that, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, you know, we've kind of hit the saturation point. <laughs> I'd say we're finally getting to the point where we're seeing real adoption by people other than us. But you know, that's still a very long process and we're still kind of making our way there. I can definitely speak to that because we are on the front lines of that. And I oftentimes see organizations that they're, they're structured to work against this thinking because they're structured in the old 1800s railroad model, which is functional or product lines. And, and that sometimes works against our customer centric thinking, which we'll talk a lot about at the conference. And I know we're on the same page there. So let's shift for just a second here. And let's talk about the Blue Apron and the Wayfair examples that you mentioned, as well as maybe get a little more specific about the models. And we've been using a very generic term here about models, but I imagine that there are many more flavors of models that you use inside the concept of customer-based corporate valuation. Sure. Yes. I don't know if you think it'd be helpful to kind of walk through the story a little bit of what happened and then, uh, you know, then we can start talking models. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, so basically what happened was you know, Blue Apron, they put out an IPO prospectus, which is what all companies do before they go public. And it was actually Pete who had sent me a message saying, hey, have you taken a look at their uh, IPO prospectus? And I had just finished my dissertation, feeling pretty good. I feel like I had some time to waste. So I was like, you know, I'm just going to kind of dive in. <laughs> okay, this is uh, where you were like what I would imagine Michael Burry to be. Like, I've got some free time. I'll run some models. <laughs> Why not? This is how I have fun. It legitimately is. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I love it. But yes, I, I took a look and the first thing that was very surprising was they didn't disclose anything about customer retention or customer churn, even though yeah, they're fundamentally a subscription-based business and a lot of their peers at companies like telecommunications firms, they do disclose those sorts of metrics. So that was interesting. But they did disclose a number of data points about their customers, but they kind of did it in kind of a throwaway way, you know, where essentially the picture that they were painting was one of everything going up and to the right, you know, kind of your typical mm. venture capital PowerPoint deck. <laughs> <laughs> and so they were saying, our, our revenues are growing strongly. Our active customer counts growing strongly. Look at our order growth. And essentially, even though I couldn't apply the exact methodology from a paper I'd co-written with Pete Fader on subscription-based valuation, I applied a very similar model. And basically, it allowed me to, to uncover what the company's retention curve actually was, even though they didn't disclose it. <laughs> and the punchline was, you know, basically, you know, they acquire 100 customers, roll forward the clock by six months, and about 70% of those customers will have churned. 
And wow. you know, that is just far worse than companies, say, like Netflix or Dollar Shave Club, that they essentially, they retain almost twice as many customers. So I kind of did a, a deep dive and essentially that work, I posted it to LinkedIn so it's publicly available and you know, for good or for bad, I'd actually disclosed the underlying spreadsheet that I used to come up with all the calculations. So everything was fully transparent to everybody mm-hmm. and that piece ended up going viral. So it ended up in the Wall Street Journal multiple times, Fortune, Forbes, Barron's, uh, you name it. And kind of the, the rest of the story for them is, is kind of history that you know, originally they had priced their IPO at $15 to $17 per share. About five days after I'd released a detailed analysis, they cut the price range to the $10 to $11 a share. The IPO to 10 and you know, now that they're sitting you know, below $3 a share. So you know, they've fallen a subsequent over 70% from an already discounted IPO price. I really do feel like it was a very good example of, you know, we had this one image that was being painted, which is kind of the traditional venture capital growth at all costs. Mm-hmm. Look at all this. We're just going to eventually grow ourselves into profitability. Don't worry about the fact that we're losing money right now. And on the flip side, you kind of dip beneath the surface and you see actually the fundamentals at the customer level are eroding and are really not looking good. If you actually identified that, that would have really dodged a bullet in this case. Wow. Well, do you think that had the companies that took them public, do you think had they done this kind of model valuation, would they have ever gotten out of the gate? I think that the people who might have pushed them in this direction was the VC community. I think that there's many companies, them, but also a number of other subscription bus companies and otherwise who have folded up shop, who essentially said, we pursued this growth at all costs model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was promoted by the venture capital firms that essentially just gave them a lot of money and said, grow. (laughs) And you know, that doesn't, I think that model is becoming less and less relevant. So I think there is an element here where there's kind of a pocket of people within VC, kind of like Anthony Cho within private equity, that are waking up to the importance of revenue stability, not just revenue growth and the importance of unit economics. But still, I think they are certainly, I would say, partially to blame for what happened to Blue Apron. Yeah, in a way, you've got two different objectives. You know, the objective of the VC is not necessarily the objective of the company. I want liquidity at the highest rate I can get back for highest return for my dollar. I don't really care if the company is sustainable long term. But for the average investor who's buying into that IPO, it's really unfair. And I'm glad your models are bringing to light some of that, what almost feels like bad marketing exercise. You know, they're going out there saying, buy, 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 but it's really not a good thing to buy. And that's good what you're doing. I think the game theory here, you know, hopefully is as this sort of way of thinking about the world gains more traction, if the VCs know that they won't be able to go public at good valuations with these companies because you know, investors now understand and appreciate the importance of unit economics, they won't push them out of the starting gate to, to pursue that model. Because yeah, suddenly now their incentives are aligned with those of the public market investors. So I think that's really the hope. And I, I think it. to some degree, yeah, it's going to be very, very potentially beneficial you know, for the overall economy. Because essentially what one would argue is that strategy itself is destroying value. So to the extent that we can kind of just prevent companies from doing that, 
it's just going to retain value that otherwise would have been destroyed. I love it. So this example was really about the importance of retaining customers and, and a bit about the customer acquisition cost and maybe even about how, you know, how many customers were in the market. But let's shift gears to your second example to Wayfair. How did that one shape up and what did you learn when you ran those models? Yes, it was a very fundamentally different story. And just to kind of provide a little context again, because I think the context can be very helpful. Yeah, Pete and I, we had put out the original paper on how we can do valuation for subscription businesses. And obviously, you know, with that kind of box checked, we're like, the next target should be doing the same thing for non-subscription. <laughs> so we went out and the original version of the paper actually featured no empirical public company examples at all. It actually just featured data from a a privately held company that was uh, very gracious in, in providing us essentially their full transaction log all the way back to the beginning of commercial operations. And so we had played this Sorry, yeah, thought just, experiment game. Just to clarify, uh, yeah. the original version of the paper was a subscription model and you had a private company that gave you the back to the dawn of time data to work with, correct? Yeah, the, the subscription paper had, had pretty much been accepted at the Journal of Marketing. Okay. And so. Yeah, I was essentially moving on to the kind of part two of the dissertation you know, for non-subscription firms. Thank um, you. Yeah, so it's for that paper that we essentially used this private company and played this thought experiment game where he said, imagine that this were a publicly traded company. Imagine that this hypothetical company disclosed certain aggregated metrics. Let's think about how well we can be able to predict what this private company will do if we only had those metrics. And we ran these big simulations and basically showed, you know, with, with the right set of aggregated quarterly disclosed metrics, we can essentially predict the future just as well as we could if we had the granular transaction log data. But the reviewers came back and they said, come on, if you're going to propose a methodology for valuing public non-subscription firms, you need to actually do it for a public firm. <laughs> so we said, okay, fine. And it was because of that that we actually searched around and found Overstock and Wayfair. They were two companies that just so happened to disclose a pretty good amount of customer data in their public filings. So we basically went in and repeated the analysis for them. And essentially, the conclusion that we reached was, whereas with Overstock, the valuations seemed fairly reasonable, you know, that we kind of ran a, a related model where we kind of predict out you know, how many customers we're going to acquire in the future the cost that we'll incur to acquire each of those customers, and then the flow of subsequent purchases that those customers make until they churn, and then a model for basket size. The resulting revenue forecast led to a valuation that was very close to Overstock's then current traded stock price. But when we ran the exact same model for Wayfair, we came to a very different conclusion. Basically, you know, we had inferred that their stock should be worth something like one sixth what it had been trading at at the time. Whoa. And we did, yeah, we were very struck by that. And we did not want that to be the conclusion. In some sense, you know, we don't want to challenge the efficient markets hypothesis in a marketing paper. And this is, you know, an academic paper. So that was very divergent from what the market had said, but it was what our model implied. And so we had to, just being scientists, that's what we had to report. So we did and had no idea how that would be perceived. But uh, what ended up happening was one of the people we'd mentioned in the paper, Andrew Left, he subsequently tweeted about the paper you know, just the very next day, actually. And I don't know if you know Andrew Left, 
You mentioned Michael Burry. Andrew Left, he's very, very, very popular. He's an extremely famous short seller. And so it led to this explosion of interest and downloads in the paper. And yeah, so that ended up in the Wall Street Journal. We ended up on a conference call with about 70 hedge funds uh, (laughs) moderated by a sell-side firm. There was a lot of controversy involved, but again, it was all because we essentially wanted to be true to the conclusions of the work. Were you getting so so many calls because people were having trouble accepting the answer? Or were you getting so many calls because people just wanted more reason to believe the answer? We were getting the calls because the day that those tweets came out, on no other news, the stock fell by about 10%. And so that ended up being the biggest one-day drop that the stock had had in about a year and a half. So people, I think, were thinking like, whoa, <laughs> I need to understand you know, what this paper is saying, because clearly it's moving the market. So I think that was the original source of it. Okay. So they wanted to understand, but were they understanding in a, like, tell me more, let me just get my arms around this. Or were they like, nope, that can't be right. Nope. I'm, uh, I'm sure my evaluation is better. All the above. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting everything. So, <laughs> yeah. So whereas the Andrew Lefts or you know, people who generally thought the company was overvalued, yeah, they said, that's exactly right. <laughs> this is the smartest analysis I've ever seen. And then the people who had been long the stock, I was getting calls from the second largest shareholder of Wayfair. And wow. obviously, you know, they have a vested interest in saying the analysis is incorrect. And so actually, you know, there are people who are spreading false rumors about this work was actually paid for by that short seller. It's completely false. <laughs> but when money's on the line, you know, people will do whatever it takes to essentially predict their position. And that's, I think, exactly what happened on both sides. So with Wayfair, it sounds like the you mentioned that the stock price didn't align. But was it about retention? Was it about acquisition? What aspect didn't really align? You know, it was primarily a case of customer acquisition cost. So they were acquiring a ton of customers. We actually, I inferred that they will eventually penetrate a very substantial proportion of all U.S. households. So there wasn't an issue with just the volume of future acquisitions either. And in fact, compared to Overstock, after a customer is acquired, Wayfair customers were substantially more valuable the net present value of all the future profits that a Wayfair customer will generate after acquisition, you know, something like 30% higher. The problem was Wayfair was spending way more to acquire its customers, about $69 per customer, whereas at Overstock, it was just dramatically lower than that. And so I ended up inferring essentially that, you know, whereas at Overstock, they earn about $10 for every customer they acquire. Wayfair is losing about $10 for every customer that they acquire. So in some sense then, the more they acquire customers, the less valuable they get. (laughs) Because uh, (laughs) every customer that they acquire is destroying value. Oh, Uh, that's horrible, right? That's awful. (laughs) Yes, I think a very interesting case study, just the comparison between the two. Overstock was taking the more, we're not gonna grow as quickly we're not going to penetrate nearly as much of the market. We are going to be stingier about how we acquire customers. And even though those customers won't end up being as valuable as Wayfair customers, that stinginess on the acquisition side will at least leave us with a sustainable but smaller business. So I think 
again, all those components really, really matter a lot. The complete picture. These are fantastic stories, Dan. Thank you. Let's circle back to one thing that you alluded to that I'm not sure we defined very well for the listeners, and that was the concept of subscription versus non-subscription models. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of companies are appropriate for the models and what the difference is between subscription and non-subscription? Yeah, it's it's a very important point because I think a lot of people, they will spend more time thinking about the distinction between B2B and B2C or domestic versus international. And actually, these models apply very well you know, to both B2B and B2C companies, domestic and international. Uh, going back to Zodiac, for example, we had customers that were headquartered in South Africa. And uh, the models continue to work just as well for them as they did for you know, e-commerce companies here in America. So those distinctions, I think, are less important. Those are all businesses that we can model without any issues. The difference between subscription business and a non-subscription business is much more important. And the main reason why is, is essentially because at subscription firms, the modeling can be much easier because we actually have the ability to observe when customers terminate the relationship. Mm-hmm. So essentially what I would argue, and this is why we had two separate papers, you know, one for the subscription setting and one for the non-subscription setting, it's because the model that we have to use to predict what future customer behavior will be is very different between those two settings. Got it. When it's a subscription-based, you can tell when the customer is gone. And when it's non-subscription, you're guessing, which means you probably have a statistical propensity to say whether they're likely to return or not. Yeah, it's always this guessing game that you're not sure you know, whether someone who hasn't purchased in a while, they're just kind of a white buyer who kind of within the natural interpurchase cycle, or whether it's someone who's terminated a relationship and then never coming back again. So essentially, it changes the sort of data that these companies can provide us as well. So in the example of Overstock and Wayfair, the sort of things that they were disclosing were, in addition to revenues, the number of active customers, just the number of people who made at least one purchase over some window of time, because at least that's observable. But what they couldn't ever disclose and what this, even the CEO of Overstock Wafer will never be able to know is the total number of customers who actually still have relationships with the firm. Mm-hmm. Contrast that to you know, Dish Network or SiriusXM, subscription-based companies. They were able to put in their filings the total number of customers that they have a relationship with. Again, it's just it's much easier because they are actually able to know that number. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what about companies that are not just B2B and not just B2C, but B2B2C? Yeah, things get harder. If you go to the example of a CPG company like Procter & Gamble, they don't necessarily have direct visibility to the end customer. And the same would be true, historically speaking, of a company like Nike. Again, to go back to the Zodiac-Nike tie-up, historically, Nike was a brand. Yeah, so they sold very heavily through middlemen, whether it's Foot Locker or what have you. And again, just saying things that are completely out in the public domain, I'm not trying to, there's nothing, nothing confidential here. They've made a big pivot towards selling directly to the consumer, whether it's through their website or through their, you know, through their Nike stores. So suddenly, now that they've made that change, they actually have the ability to observe the end customer. And that's really kind of, what makes the modeling much easier for people like us. So it's not to say that a company like Procter & Gamble, you know, to the extent that they don't have any direct-to-consumer business, it's not that we can't 
do our analysis, but it becomes much harder. And so you know, they may need to rely very heavily on data from uh, data providers like uh, Nielsen and IRI using household panels as opposed to you know, actual transaction logs. Do you trust that data coming in or is it just as good as you can get? Yeah, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king is something I live by. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all? I'll take whatever I can get. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I, you know, especially with all the discussion about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook lately, it's made me think more about how much of our data is out there. But oftentimes, that data is really bad, and I see it in multiple databases. This is a side topic, so I don't want to go too far down this avenue. But I think it as Anyone who works with data, we're always subject to the quality of the data that we work with. And the beauty of the customer-based corporate valuation is oftentimes you're using either publicly disclosed data, which has got to be clean, or what you you would hope it's clean, (laughs) or you're using the company's data itself, which is probably, you know, some of the best data that you can get hold of, as opposed to in the marketing world, we're oftentimes using proxies for data. Like, I don't actually know that you're a customer, but you're illustrating behavior that looks like a customer. So you're making these kind of leaps of faith in the data that you have, or you're using advertising data. And, you know, again, we're back to the point where that information is better than what you had before, but still not necessarily accurate. And I guess that I guess that's not going away anytime soon, is it? Yeah, I don't think that it is. Uh, I think the the rise of alternative data sets will only make those trade-offs more and more relevant in the future. And I think the, the issue of data being good or bad, it really can come down to kind of like three main distinctions. You know, the first is, is it observable? You know, do you actually get to see the data in the first place? And for CPG companies, you don't, oftentimes. There's the question of, is the data usable? Is it useful or not? And so, you know, I think to the Cambridge Analytica example, a lot of that information is was psychographic in nature. And to the extent that I have worked with demographic and psychographic data, oftentimes it's very not predictive hmm. of the value of customers. So that data is observable, but it's not useful. <laughs> so yeah, it's distinctions like that, that I think are, are very helpful to, to kind of make clear. I'd say one of the beauties of the sort of models that I've been working with is that we actually don't need a whole lot of data beyond the transaction log. That if I have the ability to observe customer behavior over some period of time, whether it's a transaction log looking at, you know, say, 12 months or more of actual customer buying, or it's a public company where I have, you know, say three years or more of public disclosures. Oftentimes that's enough to be able to work the magic. We don't necessarily need all of these additional CRM attributes that I think make a lot of people very uncomfortable. So, yeah, I think if, even if we were to move into a world, you know, say post GDPR where we don't have the ability to, you see a lot of these other data points about customers, I'm perfectly okay with that. I actually think that that will be a big positive for the sort of modeling that I personally do. Huh, that's an interesting perspective, Dan. We should do a follow-up on that. Now, you did just say three things, and you said, is it observable? Is it usable? What's the third? Is it observable? Is it usable? And the third one, is it representative? And the reason I mention that is because, yeah, oftentimes if you have a panel of users, that could be very different from if you have the full data set from the company itself. Yeah. 
And yeah, especially with these business intelligence firms, you know, oftentimes you'll be able to get something like a very large credit card panel, but it still represents on the order of say, you know, 3% of all credit cards mm-hmm. in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so you have that kind of just lingering doubt in your head that, you know, is that 3% actually representative? I think oftentimes these firms have done a, a great job of being able to convince people because of other data they have about those customers that it is, but very different from, say, SEC data, you know, where yeah. it might be aggregated, which limits its usefulness, but it's fully representative. Yep, that makes perfect sense. I love it. Okay, Dan, so let's say that I'm totally sold on this. I love the idea of customer-based corporate valuation. It seems to me that if I were to begin, the first step is that it, CBCV basically tells me what's happening. Would you agree with that? I'm kind of just getting the placeholder of what's going on. Is that my first step? That's fair. I think it's basically a measurement problem. Mm -hmm. And so it's particularly relevant. I'm very happy to share the two papers that Pete Fader and I have published on this topic, but both of them kind of assume that the person doing the analysis does not control the steering wheel. So I'd mentioned the private equity firm example, you know, that conceivably they can manipulate marketing levers. In this case, it really is more, imagine that the status quo were to persist. What does that imply for the health of my business? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, yeah, understanding that and really kind of internalizing that is kind of a very important first step. Excellent. Excellent. And then once you know what's happening, is there a side of the equation that's more important to address? Like, is it more important to address retention versus acquisition or does it just depend on the company itself? Depends on the company. So I think once you've kind of run the model yourself and you have a chance to kind of internalize what it means for your firm. And so again, going back to the example of Blue Apron, that work really highlighted the difficulty of customer retention, and secondarily, the importance of customer acquisition costs, which had been moving up really concertedly before the IPO. You know, that could mean, you know, to the extent that you want to put the pressure where the pain is, maybe they should be spending a lot of time thinking about you know, potentially how they can improve the retention profile of their customers and or make their customer acquisition spending more efficient. Yep. If it were a different company that essentially sells product at a loss, it could be that they're acquisition, they have no issues with customer acquisition costs. It could be that they need to really think about targeted cost reductions. So I think it really does kind of depend on the context, but what will remain constant in all of those examples is the overarching value framework. That's going to remain the same. You know, that essentially we can be able to think about the value of your firm by thinking about the quantity and quality of the customers you will acquire in the future, retention of all of your customers, whether they're existing or future, your ability to get orders out of those customers, the amount that they spend on those orders, and the cost to serve the customer. That framework will always be the same. That's back to the core problem of it's the customer that drives your business. And that's what I love to come back to, especially in the marketing world where we're oftentimes, I think, distracted by channels. I oftentimes say to my customers, channels don't buy your product. Customers buy your product. (laughs) You have to get to customer. (laughs) Uh, we hear the same thing with products. We need to sell this product. No. <laughs> what you need to do is build a portfolio of products or a portfolio of channels that are synchronized and expand the value of the customer. But ultimately, it's 
CLV that matters the most. Got it. Yeah, I love it. It's, it's, it's just speaking to the choir here. So, Dan, if people want to reach you, how can they get in touch? So I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. I would say, first, it'd be great to connect on both. Happy to share my details you know, with you you know, on the website. Mm-hmm. I do have a kind of a semi-regular drip feed on LinkedIn, so that tends to be kind of my home base. <laughs> and I follow so, this. It's highly, probably... it's valuable. I love it. I, I love the stuff that you post. So I highly recommend it to anyone. Well, I'm glad at least one person finds it useful. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully more, but... Uh... For sure. So LinkedIn, Twitter, and then we can put any other contact information you want to share up on the podcast site. Yeah, email is also great. I'd love to basically hear anyone and everyone. I I really feel very strongly about this. I've kind of become my second baby. So (laughs) yeah, I definitely create value for the economy. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay, so I'm going to summarize here and I'll do my best to capture our conversation and just feel free to let me know if I've missed anything or if you want to add anything. But first, we talked about why you should care. And the part I loved about this most was when you said not every dollar is created equally because that just really sums up the whole concept. And behind that is the concept that not every customer is equally valuable. And that's that's almost heresy. But the concept that not every dollar is created equally is sometimes a little easier to understand or more palatable, perhaps. So when we keep that concept in mind, then the next idea that you rolled into also in why you should care that I thought was really effective is when we talk about marketers needing budget and being able to speak the CFO's language, that's a huge advantage. And I almost see it as you're there hat in hand with the CFO and you're trying to talk about the value that you're driving. And the way the question should run or the way that layout should run is if I can expand sales by X, given Y dollars, or perhaps I can expand sales by X, given Y dollars, to target Z customers where, you know, the customers are the good customers or the ones that are becoming good, and they represent a specific future value, then it's a much easier conversation for the CFO to justify a particular budget because you're basically saying, here's the model in the past, here's the model going future, and how I want the marketing to support it. Did I miss anything there? Would you agree? Yep, I think that sounds exactly right. Yeah, you've got the ability to say, this is how much I'm going to spend. I can give you an estimate of the cost per acquisition. And this is how much I expect those customers to be worth after they've come in the door. And so, you know, I can give you a return on investment calculation that hopefully you know, should be reasonable enough to, to justify a very large marketing budget. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, these valuation models, they run in millions. It's not like you're looking at the ROI of a campaign. It's really powerful. I love these numbers. Then second, let's look at the kind of impact. We talked about the Wayfair example. And we talked about the Blue Apron example. But in both cases, I think it goes back to Business 101, where you have to understand your numbers, you know, your customer acquisition costs, your customer 
customer retention costs, perhaps your unit economics. And there are just so many millions of metrics that people can measure, but getting aligned with a laser focus on what drives the heart of the business, I think is what sets the real leaders apart to generate impact versus the follow-ons who are distracted by perhaps other metrics that are supporting metrics, but are not the core metric. And this is where I think the CBCV models are really the key because they force you to focus on customers as the key to your future revenue. Did I miss anything there? Right on. Good, good. Okay. And then third, I mean, we've given a a couple different links to papers that we will include and we'll have those in the follow-up. But when I think about the how and moving into next steps, what I really liked here is that you talked about it as a measurement problem. You know, first, I have to understand what's happening. Second, within those measurements, I need to look at the specific focus that's right for my business. You can't just pick up what happened at Wayfair or what happened at Blue Apron and blanket apply it. You have to really understand your business with respect to the model. And that's where your internal subject matter experts become incredibly important for deciding what should you really do and you know what's the right way to move forward. But I think the fundamental step of running the model and getting that information together to just say what's happening is really your key. That's the first piece. And of course, check out Dan's LinkedIn posts to uh, to get more information on how he's applying them in you know perhaps more recent examples. Good. Yeah, I think if I were to kind of just build just a little bit too on the what's happening point that that you can just mention, there's kind of what's happening to my firm, and then the other kind of two dimensions of that are what's happening to me relative to my competition to establish kind of a baseline level of what good performance actually is. And then the third would be, even for very good firms, you know, what's my performance relative to my performance in the past? And so even if you are, you know, say Netflix, uh, which has done a wonderful job of creating very high CLV customers and acquiring a lot of them over time, you know, they can essentially run models like these every single month or every single quarter and be able to say how much CLV did I acquired this quarter? And what was the average CLV per acquired customer? Is that trending up or down? And that could be a way to kind of really help push good companies to become even better. So I think, you know, this is not just a methodology for, you know, say flagging companies looking to turn themselves around. This is something that I think is applicable to, to virtually all, you know, customer driven businesses. You know, I almost think that there is a limited number of good customers out there, though. And the people who do this now will have a substantial competitive advantage. Do you think that's a correct assumption? You know, better to come out in front of it than to continue with the status quo, but then get kind of bushwhacked, you know, two years from now. Better to do it now. Well, with that, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. As always, everything we discussed are at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. And remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It's not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for joining today's show. This is Allison. Just a few things before you head out. Every Friday, I put together a short bulleted list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. I actually call this email the signal. 
Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are doing amazing work building customer equity. If you'd like to receive this nugget of goodness each week, you can sign up at ambitiondata.com and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoy the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.